it's good to be in God's house, amen, and a good crowd out on this Tuesday night. Certainly appreciate you taking the time from your schedule and coming and being a part of the meeting tonight. God's been helping us in these days, and and I'm grateful that God has chosen to meet with us. I'm ever mindful. That's a blessing. I know, I know, I know that he obligated himself where two or three are gathered in his name He'd be in the midst, but I never did read in that where he guaranteed his manifestation. And his presence will be there, but I'm not satisfied with just knowing that he's there. I want him to manifest himself, and I want to be aware that he's there. Amen? And there is a distinction, there's a difference, and I thank God for what he's doing in our hearts these days. I'm in the book of James tonight, um, chapter number four, if you'll take your Bibles and turn there. I appreciate you men coming out. Brother Keys, good to see you tonight. Thank you for coming and being a part of the meeting. Amen. Well, they were singing that last song, There's a Miracle in Me, and I was thinking about an incident in my own Christian life a host of years ago. Um, I, My ordaining church, Bethany Baptist Church in Gainesville, Georgia, was in an interim time between pastors and I was doing the fill-in between uh, the time that the pastor had left and the new pastor had come. And, and uh, I preached one night. seemed like it was a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. But I preached on that miracles. God works miracles. And there was a, an older gentleman. He led our singing. Um, Brother Duncan, good man, Bible scholar. Studied that Bible. Could put that Bible out before you in a Sunday school class. And we had a little narrow church. It wasn't as wide as this one. It's narrow. Nowhere to go on the outside edges. Everybody had to go through that center aisle. And it's very narrow. And he confronted me about middle ways of that aisle on that church. I was much younger. I was in my older teen years. And he looked at me and he said, Now, Brother Dwayne, he said, I don't want to hurt you or hinder you. But he said, I'm going to have to tell you that there was a mistake in what you preached tonight. Well, I'm always open to criticism, if it's right criticism. And he went on to explain to me in no uncertain times that the dispensations of the Bible had dictated that we no longer lived in the days of miracles. Is that right? And the Holy Ghost helped me. And I'm maintaining the integrity of the moment and the respect I owed that elder. And I asked him, Brother Dent, I said, uh, Brother Duncan, I said, uh, what is a miracle? And he said, anything that deviates from its natural course is a miracle. I said, well, I rest my case on your definition. There's a miracle in me. Because the natural course of man, he was conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. Amen. And there's an Adamic nature inside of him that's condemned. Amen. And his natural course leads to destruction and hell. That's where I was headed. That's where you were headed. But thank God Jesus stepped in and he wrought a miracle and he deviated from the natural course, established my going, set my feet on a solid foundation. Made me an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ and a fit subject for heaven. That's still a miracle. Amen. Thank God. By the way, I still believe he works other miracles too, but that's a miracle. Amen. 
that God would do that for you and I. James chapter number 4, James chapter number 4. We'll just read uh, four or five verses tonight here in the context of this passage of Scripture. And you pray and ask the Lord to help us while we consider the text tonight. Verse number 13 and following. The Bible said, Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Now notice our punctuation mark. It's a colon. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not to him, it is sin. Now I'm interested tonight, and I want to look for just a little bit at verses 13, 14, and 15. As I read through verse 13, I ask you to take notice of the punctuation. I'm not a grammatically minded individual, but punctuation's part of the text. Somebody say amen right there. And uh, when I read this, it's evident to me, and I'm not going to change my King James Bible. Y'all just bear with me a moment. But if you want to look at these three verses, 13, 14, and 15, in their grammatical order, what you have to do is you have to take verse number 14 and set it aside. That's how the Scriptures read. What he says is that we ought not say, we say we're going to a certain city and we continue there a year and we buy and we sell and we get gain for what you ought to say. See, he's correcting what we did say. For what you ought to say is, if the Lord will, we shall do this or that. Now, I would take to note tonight that these words are the words of James. I refer to James, and I mean no disrespect when you hear me say this, I believe he's the old codger of the scriptures. Amen. I, I'm just, I'd like to see how James would respond in this snowflake generation. Somebody say amen. I mean, I, I, I'm talking about the guy that writes in his little book, you say you have faith, show me your works and I'll see if you have any faith. Amen. I'm just persuaded that he wouldn't appreciate this, this generation. Amen. And, uh, and, and James says some things in this text, but however, I would point out to you that he is not against relocating. He's not preaching against moving to another city. He's not preaching against capitalism. He's not preaching against a prophet. He's not preaching against having a business. He's not preaching against making plans or preparations. Amen? What he is preaching about is presumption presumption that we are going to do it our way regardless of God's will for our life. We ought to say, Lord willing, we're going to do this or that. Amen. And, and, and in the midst of this, James asked some questions. i got to be honest, if I could be honest with you tonight. I don't necessarily like everything that's in this passage of Scripture. Now, y'all looking at me like, I can't believe the preacher just said that. We come to hear him expound the Scripture, and he said he didn't like the Scripture. I still believe every word of it. That don't mean I like every bit of it. Somebody say amen right there. And uh, and uh, when I come to this passage of Scripture, there's at least three statements or three things that James points out 
that I'm not really fond of. Let's see if you like them any better than I do. First of all, I'd say this. When I read this passage of Scripture, I'm not really fond of the fact that James deals with the bewilderment of our lives. Look at verse number 15. James said, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. Amen. There's not a doctor in South Georgia that'll guarantee your life tomorrow with his life today. Amen. Not a one. I'm talking about not a one. You can't get somebody to do that because you do not know what tomorrow may hold. We have personal friends, and I learned early Monday morning, a pastor friend of mine in the Conyers area, and I learned early Monday morning that his daughter and her husband were headed home from church on Sunday night and were involved in a terrible accident. And uh, and uh, and uh, they had to rush them to Grady. If you're in Atlanta, Georgia, and you hear somebody say they took them to Grady, we usually drag our head and we say, oh, no. And because that's the premier trauma unit in the state of Georgia. Anywhere in Georgia, they bring them into Grady when nobody else can touch them. And, and uh, in just a few moments' time, their entire life has changed. They're still piecing her body, Mackenzie. They're still piecing her body back together. And uh, and they're still trying to, uh, to save her life and make sure she's got a future that lies ahead of her. I'm just saying to you, you don't know what tomorrow holds. And there's a bewilderment in life. You do not know. Amen. Can I put it this way? You know why you and I have problems? We are, we have to understand that life is out of our control. Amen. I drive a lot of miles in the course of a year, usually close to 50,000 miles in evangelism. And uh, we always have a joke around our house because I generally drive about 49,000 of those. All right. I don't usually let Melissa drive. And if you, if you confront me about it and we're talking about it, I'm going to use some statement like, well, if you've ever rode with her, you wouldn't let her drive either. <laughs> Amen. And, uh, and so I like to aggravate her about her driving skills. But the reality is, the reality is she's not a bad driver. And the reality is that she's about as safe as I am. She's got a little heavier foot than I do. She tends to drive a little bit faster than I do. Amen. But when you take me out of the driver's seat, when I've got access to the brake pedal and the gas and the steering wheel, and you put me over in the passenger seat, when I should be able to push that little lever on the side of the seat, let that thing lay back a bit and take a nap, I just can't seem to do that. Why? Because it's out of my control. Amen. I'm constantly saying, don't run up on that truck. Amen. Hey, 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 don't get no closer to the edge over there. Amen. It's out of control. We don't like things that are out of our control. And yet life is one of those things that James said is out of our control. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what the next 15 minutes holds. Amen. We're just a phone call away from an entirely different life than we live before the phone began to ring. There's a bewilderment in life. And then number two, if I could say this hastily, I'm just giving you an introduction, but I'd, I'd say this in verse number 15. Here's another statement that old James makes that I'm not fond of. He deals with the bewilderment of my life. It's out of my control. But then he deals with the brevity of my life. 
Out of all the words that he could have chosen, all of the statements he could have made, look what he said. He says to us, he said, uh, it is even a vapor that appeareth for, here's the two words I don't like, little time. Amen. Just a little time. You and I have to understand life is brief. Uh, some of us, we get a few more years on us and we begin to look back at our yesterdays. And here's the question that we always ask. Where did time go? Amen. It doesn't matter how fruitful their life has been, how long they've lived it. They may be a 103 uh, when they're called home to glory. But they always look back at those yesterdays, uh, not necessarily with regret, Brother Diet, uh, uh, but with an acknowledgement that it's just been uh, a little time. Why? doesn't give us a lot of opportunity. It just gives us a little time. Then there's a third statement, man, that he makes that I don't like. Number one, he said life is bewildering. You don't understand it. It's out of your control. Then he said life is brief. It's just a little time. Man. But then I want you to understand he talks about the bereavement of life. Here's what grieved James in his lifetime. He identifies it in verse number 15 when he makes this statement, It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time. And then get this last expression. He said, It vanisheth away. Wow! It'll soon be gone. Amen? It'll soon be past. And not only, Brother Kidman, will it be past, there's another reality. It'll soon be forgotten. Amen. It'll soon be forgotten. The Bible likens it to a vapor, not a fog. Make sure you get your theology right. He said a fog will linger and you'll know it's been there. But a vapor is what takes place just between the, the, just between the passing of night into the morning. That little moment of time we call the dawn. You can step out on the day when the temperature's right. On your back porch and there across your backyard will lay a vapor rising up out of the ground. You can go back inside, push the button on your coffee maker. Two and a half minutes later, have a, have a, have a big tall cup of joe. Head back out on that back porch and not only will the vapor be gone, but any remembrance that there's ever been a vapor is gone as well. Amen. Oh, can I say to you what frightens us? is the reality that no matter what we do, you get in politics, you hear people talk about their legacy, what they're leaving behind. I'm going to tell you, they're just a generation away from anybody even remembering who they are. Amen. When the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, there wasn't a man in Egypt that remembered who Joseph was. Amen. That's exactly right. I remember years ago, I had a missionary friend of mine, Brother Joe Copley, Brother Joe came to my church when I pastored in the 90s, and uh, he's about 10 years older than I am. Brother Joe made a statement in my pulpit that bothered me. He said, my mother died, and I knew his testimony. He died, or she died, rather, when he was about 12 years of age. Uh, and he, at that point, had been, was in his 40s, no doubt, and he said this. Uh, he said, uh, my mother's memory is fading away. Uh, he said, I can close my eyes and I can still see her face. 
But her features are not as clear and as crisp as they used to be. He said, my mother's memory is fading. I can listen for her voice and I can still hear her voice. But the distinction of that sound uh, is not as clear as it used to be. And with tears running down his face, he said, her memory is fading away. Yeah, I never lost anybody at that point in my life uh, to that caliper. And I thought, man, I can't understand that. That's not the case. Uh, but years have come now and gone, and I've lost grandparents and precious family members. And if I try real hard, uh, I can still see their faces. Uh, but they're not as clear as they used to be. Uh, I can still hear their voices, but not with the distinction that I used to hear it. Uh, it's vanishing away. That's what God said. Uh, it'll vanish away. Uh, There'll come a day when you'll not have family that recalls what you accomplished. There'll come a day when the community will not remember what you did. There'll come a day when all the trophies at the high school that you earned in the sports program will mean nothing. There'll come a day when all of the accolades that were laid at your feet will simply be nothing. Amen. In fact, I'd say to you if we were to go out to the cemetery... We were to look at a tombstone, a headstone, whatever you choose to call that cemetery marker. If we were to look at that thing, you'll find that there's only three pieces of information that's ever provided. There is the name of the one that's buried beneath the sod. There is the day of their birth. That is the time they entered this world. But then there's one other piece of information. The day they left. The day they died. The day they checked out. It does not identify necessarily that they were a mother or a father, and that they were some uh, some doctor or some scholar. It does not identify that they were wealthy or poor. It simply identifies who they are and the day they were born and the day they die. Everything else is lost to that little dash that connects the day they were born to the day they died. If you and I ever get a hold of the fact that the, the bereavement of our life, it'll someday be consolidated down and fit on a dash. How about that? Just a little few inches between the day of birth and the date of your death, the entirety of your life will be inscribed on that dash. Well, if I've got that reality, let me ask you a question like James said. What is your life? What is your life? He asked, what does it consist of? Uh, let me put it in the perspective of my illustration. What's on your dash? Amen. If you're writing your dash between the day you were born and the day you die, what is on that dash? What is your life? What does it consist of? Uh, now let's think about that dash for a minute. I thought about three things. Introduction number two. Uh, Introduction number one, introduction number two. I thought about three things. Number one, your dash is a record. Amen. It's a record. There is a record being kept of the life we live. Can I say this? You might be well to remember we'll face it again. Amen. We'll face it again. If you were to, uh, if you were to take out your checkbook tonight, and if you've got a bank printed check or or you get them from Harlan checks or something like that, and if there's anybody in here works in the banking industry, you can validate this. 
But that signature line on your check to the naked eye looks like a black line. But if you put that line under magnification, you'll find that it's not a black line at all. It's something called microprint. And it's a series of words too small for human eyes. But try putting it under a copier or something that would enlarge it. And it captures that granulation. And you'll see that it's often the name of the bank or it just says this is a security feature. And that statement is repeated over and over. That makes up that line on your check. Can I tell you that's how your life is? That's how your dash is? To the naked eye standing at the graveside, it just looks like a little dash. In reality, there's some microprint. God has made a record of the most minute details. He remembers every morning and every night and everything in between. Amen. I will tell you something. When you get to heaven, God is going to roll back the curtains of time and He's going to show us and what our dash consisted of uh, to the human eye it didn't look like much, but when it gets examined in light of God, it's going to mean something. Uh, there is a record on our dash. Uh, the most minor of details is never forgotten. Can I say I'm excited about the record because there's two things on it. Number one, there'll be some things that I forgot. <laughs> Amen. There, there's some things I forgot. Hadn't been long ago. I'm in South Georgia. Hadn't been long ago, maybe a couple of years. And uh, I went down and preached for Brother Mike Qualls down here at Lakeland. And uh, I come in on Sunday, and I was preaching for him on Sunday, and then another night in his meeting. And and uh, Brother Mike introduced me that Sunday night. Uh, he and I know each other from North Carolina. And uh, I preached at his home church on a regular basis uh, and we've been in several other meetings, and, and we know each other pretty good. Uh, but his introduction far exceeded uh, our acquaintance. Uh, he he told what a good fellow I was and all those kind of things. I was looking over my shoulder to see who he's talking about. Amen. Then he got kind of emotional. Uh, tears filled Brother Qualls' eyes. Uh, and he said, but the reason that Brother Moore is special to our family is that he was preaching the night. That Isaac got saved. Uh, I'd forgot that. Uh, now when he said it, my mind raced back. I could remember where I was. Uh, I could remember the night. I can still see him coming forward. Uh, but I'd forgot that. Long since forgot it. I'm glad all those things that you and I forgot uh, in our lifetime, they've been recorded on the dash. Uh, and they'll not be forgotten in heaven. Uh, not only of those things I forgot, will be in that dash, but those things that I didn't know are going to be on that dash. You say, I don't understand that, preacher. You'll get it one day. Amen. I'd say to you that there's been times we preached a message or sung a song or left a gospel track that gave a dollar to a missionary never understanding had the full outcome of what we had done, never seeing the fruit on this side of eternity. And yet, thank God, over on the other side, there's a record being kept. I'm glad one day, folks, that that record will be revealed on the other side. There's a record. Then number two, let me say this quickly. Not only does my dash represent my record, but it reminds me of my reward. Amen. If I've earned any rewards when I get to heaven, it'll be off of that dash. 
Amen. It's not happen chance. Uh, it is. He said every, he said uh, every man will be rewarded according uh, to his works. Uh, I want you to understand something. There is a day coming uh, when God is going to reveal the dash. Uh, there's been a lot of things you never got to thank you for. There's been a lot of things that nobody ever patted you on the back for. There's even been a lot of things that you thought were a complete failure, a waste of time, a loss of energy. Amen. Say me, and y'all know I'm preaching right. But thank God in heaven there'll come a day when God is going to reward you according to that which is recorded on the dash. Revelation 22 and verse number 12, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now let me give you a third thought. Not only do we see a record in the text, not only do we see uh, that there's reward in the dash, uh, uh, but there is a recompense in the dash. Uh, that, that is that there will be an examination. Uh, I fear, friend, uh, that in that final examination, not only will our dash show our accomplishments and our achievements uh, and the things that Christ will ultimately reward us for, oh, but I should remind you, uh, they'll also reveal our failures. Uh, there'll be a moment of regret and remorse uh, when we stand in judgment and God shows us what we could have accomplished and what we should have accomplished uh, if we'd have simply been obedient uh, to what God had spoken at our heart about. If we'd have just trusted Him, uh, I fear the day because there'll be tasks uh, that I left unfinished. Uh, there'll be jobs that I did not complete because I faltered and I failed. There'll be missed opportunities. God will bring back in His own capacity every time I could have done differently, everybody I could have witnessed to, every deed that could have been recorded in obedience to Christ and His commandment, those will all come back when my dash is going to be revealed. So what is your life? What is on your dash? What does your life consist of in 2020? Well, I want you to grab a pencil, write down three things, and I'll be done. These three things must be on your dash. Number one, salvation's got to be on your dash. Now, I know that's not exactly earth-shaking theology. That doesn't qualify for the title of the new book. Honey, you better get it right. There's only one place to make sure uh, that you're saved by the grace of God. And that's this life. Uh, when the dash is finished uh, and the chisel stashes the date of your death uh, on your tombstone and the undertaker inserts the key and seals the vault uh, and the grave uh, uh, diggers pour the dirt back on top of your casket. Uh, let me tell you, beloved, it'll be too late to you now. The Bible said, as a tree falleth, so shall it lie. And as death finds a man, so shall the judgment. I'm here to remind you tonight that these are the days of salvation. These are the hours when we examine our soul in light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God that is extended to sinners. And we make certain of our call and election uh, that we know beyond a 
shadow of a doubt uh, that we're saved, uh, saved, uh, saved. Amen. I like salvation stories. I mean, they thrill me. That's why I brought it up in my mind just, just like that. When we were singing the other night about salvation, knowing we were saved, uh, Brother Burke was getting all excited and hooping and hollering. And I could think back in my own mind. I could remember him testifying about being on the back of that pickup truck. Amen. Uh, that's why I whispered. I like somebody's stories. Uh, in fact, i got to tell you, I like my mom and daddy's story. Amen. I do. Now, I'm down in mama's neck of the woods, kind of, sort of. I told Brother Dent, my mom, when she was just a child, a girl, five or six years of age, that her family, her daddy, my grandpa was a sharecropper up north of Cordell, up toward Tippinsville. And I can tell you mama's story, amen. My mama was 16 years of age. Her mother was sickly. And my mom had to cook for all the men in the field and keep the house her mother wasn't able to do that. Uh, they were having a cottage prayer meeting uh, just about a mile down the road. Uh, uh, Brother Jamie in the Hog Mountain. Amen. Right there outside of the Cuba. Glory to God. Amen. And uh, they was having a cottage prayer meeting in Miss Tanner's house. I've never met Miss Tanner. I can't wait. Amen. Uh, Miss Tanner wanted my mama to come. That little old 16-year-old teenage girl. And she come down the house and went and talked to my granddaddy. And my granddaddy he said if she'll get her chores done uh, and get the kitchen cleaned up after she feeds the men, she's welcome to go if you'll come get her. Uh, Mama said she got up and got done quick and got cleaned up and put on a dress. Uh, Miss Tanner come and picked my mama up, uh, carried her to a little cottage prayer meeting on a Tuesday night, best I can figure about February of 1961. Uh, my mama went to that little cottage prayer meeting uh, at Miss Tanner's house and John G. The old preacher from that area preached with a fire in his soul. Uh, and my mama said, now y'all might not like this theology. Y'all might not agree, but we'd get mama on the phone. She'd take care of that real quick. Amen. But if I'd get mama on Facebook tonight or FaceTime or something live, I'd say, mama, tell us when you got saved. She says that Tuesday night, that cottage prayer meet Miss Tanner's house. And she said, I believe when he gave that invitation. Uh, and I put one foot out in front of the other. The Holy Ghost of God save me. Hallelujah. Amen. That's being that my mom will be 75. Don't tell her I told you. This year, amen, 60 years, 59 years ago, still sticking pretty good. Amen. I like mama's story. I mean, I'm talking about Holy Ghost conviction and a salvation wrought in her soul. I like my daddy's story. Amen. My daddy wasn't raised in church and what time that went, went to an old free will Baptist, dead, uh, uh, Calvinistic, you know, and he said, uh, he said he and mama were engaged to get married. They're engaged to get married. My mama testified and said, me and granddaddy, her granddaddy, old Baptist preachers are going out behind the house and praying that daddy gets saved because she's engaged and had a wedding date set, but she knew she couldn't marry if he didn't get saved. Could I have a little amen right there? It's still wrong to be unequally yoked together. That'll preach at any meeting any day of the week. Amen. And uh, Mama said she was a-praying and her granddaddy was a-praying. And they was asking God to save my daddy. And they was about three weeks or so before their wedding 
Sometime late in the month of February 1963 or early in the month of March 1963, my daddy was a 20-year-old young man. He said, I was drinking too much and painting the town red too often. And he said, he said, on a Sunday afternoon, God brought a series of events to pair in their home and in their family. And a little child got real sick and they thought he was going to die. And my daddy said, God kept him up all night long. And he said, Billy, you got to get saved. You've got to come to me. My daddy worked in a cabinet shop on an assembly line. He went in about 7.30 on Monday morning. He said, I made it to first break. He said, I couldn't stand it no more. He said, about two stations down that assembly line, that conveyor belt, there was a fellow named John. John was a real Christian. We mocked him. We made fun of him. We teased him. We cursed him. But old John just loved he said it got break time he said I walked down under that assembly line he said I grabbed John by the arm tears started rolling down my face and I said John I gotta have some help I need to get saved he said John never missed a lick we got down in the sawdust shavings underneath the conveyor system and my daddy got saved hallelujah I gotta be honest that's had a great impact on my dash mom and daddy Getting saved before they ever said I do. I'd say that had a great impact on my dash, but it's not what saved me. Say amen right there. Amen. Not what saved me. You don't get saved on somebody else's story. You don't get into heaven on somebody else's toy. You've got to have your own story. It's got to be on your dash. There's been a lot of things to influence and impact your dash. But ultimately, you've got to know beyond the shadow of a doubt, you've been saved by the good grace of God. Better make sure salvation. Do you have a story tonight? Is it your story? Amen. Then number two, let me say this. I'm just talking about what's got to be on your dash. I hope you know you're saved. If you don't, I wouldn't wait till invitation. Amen. Since you don't know what a day may hold, you don't know if you'll make it to the invitation. You don't know if your heart will still be beating, if you'll still be taking air in your lungs. And if I knew I was lost without God, if there was a holy fear within me called conviction, I wouldn't wait till the invitation. I'd get up out of my seat right now. I'd get saved by the grace of God. Do you have a story? Maybe you're counting on somebody else's story. It's amazing. You go talk to people about being saved, and they'll tell you about grandma, and they'll tell you about grandpa, and they'll tell you about the church they was raised in. Those are all great little bits of truth. But I'm not interested in grandma's conversion or papa's conversion. What I need to know is there ever been a time when you bowed your head in the presence of a thrice holy God and confessed your sins, asked Jesus to come into your heart, that you'll notice I told you two stories but I didn't tell you my story. But I got a story. Amen. I'm going to heaven because on a fifth Sunday night, sing March 1974, the singing group didn't show up, but God did. And I made my way down to a little old altar. And I got born again. What's your story tonight? What's on your dash? You better make sure you saved. Then number two, let me say this. You better make sure there's some service on your dash. Hey, man, you better make sure there's some service on your dash. I preached this message in a church in North Carolina, and this certain veteran I know, and I wrote it in the notes. I probably got the wrong time. But he said, I served five years 
nine months, 11 days, and eight and a half hours. I probably got a little off, but I'm pretty close. <laughs> that was Brother Kidman. <laughs> he said that to me. That so struck me. I wrote it in my notes. He'll fix the time frame. Amen. But we measure our service in numbers of continuous years. We can call those that are in the first responders. And they'll say, I've got 10 years with the police department. I've got 15 years with the fire department. Amen. I've got 10 years with the ambulance service. We can call those that are in the branches of service. They'll say, I served 5 years, 10 years, 15 years. I, 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 I retired with 20 years. All measures of their continuous service. Even those of you in the corporate world. You know that they reward you as your years of service multiply. i got to ask you a question. That's good as far as this life is concerned. But let me ask you a question. How's your years of service with the same? What kind of continuous years since you had a story to tell? Since you got saved, amen. Since you got born again. How's those continuous years of service been? Amen. You say, preacher, I faltered along the way. I, I understand that. But it might be a good night to say I'm starting over again. I'm going to start adding up some years again. I want some service again. Amen. Hey, is there some service on your dash? I cut my teeth in the Atlanta area under the ministry. Now he wasn't my pastor, but he was my mentor, my hero. And I cut my I cut my teeth in 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 the early years of my life under the ministry of Ben Turner. Ben Turner pastored the Calvary Baptist Church in Smyrna, and he founded in 1966 the Calvary Children's Home in Smyrna, still in operation today. They moved facilities, and they're in Lost Mountain now, which is about 15 minutes outside of Smyrna. But I knew Brother Ben well, traveled all over the country preaching. And uh, he had two messages everybody remembered. One was about the rattling of the wagons. And he'd preach about those wagons coming out of Egypt, bringing a provision for his family. Amen. Then the other one he always preached about got everybody's attention in North Georgia. I don't get South Georgia too much, but I preach a lot in North Georgia. Amen. It always got everybody's attention in North Georgia. He used to preach about God's little snuff box. <laughs> you could almost hear the silent shout going off the back road. When the old man of God got up and said, I'm going to preach on God's snuff box tonight. Because every one of them had a can of skull in their back pocket. And they left it at home. Their blue jeans still showed the ring. Somebody say amen right there. They thought, man alive, all these years. I thought that was, you know, he said, I thought the preacher going to preach again it. But he's going to help me out with it. Amen. And uh, and you could almost hear him shout. But Brother Ben wasn't talking about that can of skull or Copenhagen. Uh, no tobacco products. But he's uh, talking about that little snuff dish in the tabernacle. Amen. And uh, and he got to talking about that snuff dish. Uh, Exodus chapter 37 and verse number 23 tells us about when Be- Bezalel constructed those elements of service that he was instructed to make a little snuffer, a little snuff dish. And, and of course, you know the story. They were instructed to light that lamp and to keep the light burning in the, the tabernacle all the time. Never at night was it to go out. And they worked shifts as those Levitical priests. Uh, they worked shifts making sure that lamp kept burning. And that's an oil lamp. And that's an oil lamp. And you know, y'all are outdoorsmen enough to know, like those old Coleman lanterns, you got a rut, you got a wick in that thing. Uh, 
And as that, that lamp burns, that wick is consumed or at least left burnt, all right? It's charred. And if you're not careful, that wick will get so long in its burnt condition that it'll snuff out the fire. And so it's necessary that you clean or that you clip that wick, that you trim it. Brother, brother Ben used to talk about that wick. He'd say that priest would have to stay up all during the night. He'd take those tongs and he'd reach over and he'd break off that burnt portion of wick. Brother Dent, rather than discard it, rather than throw it out, he was instructed to take that little portion of burnt wick and put it in that snuff dish. And in a little while, he'd come back through and there'd be another inch or two inches. He'd break that little piece of burnt wick off and he'd put it in that snuff dish. Brother Ben built all that up and then he'd say, you know why I did that? He said, so that in the morning when the chief priest came, he didn't have to go to that Levitical priest, that shift priest that had been there through the night and say, hey, did you keep the lamp burning? All he had to do was go over and lift the lid on that little snuffer. And he'd look inside that snuff box and he could tell by the lengths of burnt wick whether that had been anybody faithful through the night. Amen. And then Brother Ben go to making this statement. He said, we're all putting lengths of burnt wick in our snuff boxes. He said, you know, in God's eyes, we separate things. But he said, in God's eyes, he said, they're all equal. Amen. He said, sis, if you, if you worked an hour in the nursery on Sunday morning, you got an hour of burnt wick. He said, sir, if you had an hour Sunday school class, Brother David, you got an hour of burnt wick. Miss Tanya, if you played the piano for an hour, you got an hour of burnt wick. And Brother Jamie, if you preached an hour, you got an hour of burnt wick. And if you cleaned the church, you got an hour of burnt wick. And if you're out on visitation, you got an hour of burnt wick. Then old Brother Ben say this. He'd say, it's not going to be long till the day breaks. Until the sun rises and the high priest is going to pick up the lid to your snuff box. And he's going to look on the inside. And he's looking for leaks of burnt wick. Because you've been faithful to God. You've been in the corner somewhere behind somebody else. And it didn't think it mattered. But I got good news. God's got a record. God's taking notice. And when heaven shows out that revelation, there will be faithfulness in our service. Amen. Do you have service on your dash? Is salvation on your dash? Then let me close with this. Do you have souls on your dash? Since you got saved and in the midst of your service, there ought to be a scattering of souls. There ought to be individuals that you personally had a hand in bringing to the knowledge of the Savior. Amen. In the continuum of your life, is there anybody at any time you brought to the Savior? I heard this story in a bygone era of a frontiersman missionary. The story was told about a pioneer missionary in the continent of Africa well over a hundred plus years ago. They said that uh, this particular missionary would go down the river, come into a village, try to master their language, give them the gospel, try to win them to Christ. And then at some point in his ministry, he'd pack up his goods, go down the river on his boat and do it again somewhere down the river. 
In this particular village, God had given him great favor. And he had had many converts. They had been, well, in fact, almost the whole village had come to the Savior. They was almost all saved. He said, all that is but one little lady. She was the eldest female in the camp. They called her Mama. And they so longed to see Mama come to Christ and get saved. But she didn't want anything to do with white man religion. She didn't want anything to do with the gospel message. She wouldn't even attend the services that they'd had for weeks down by the campfire. The missionary had announced that this would be his last service and that in the morrow he'd be packing up and going down to the next village that needed the gospel, but they'd have one last service. The, the villagers that had been saved prayed earnestly, Brother Kidman. They wanted that mother to get saved. Well, to the missionary's delight, when they started ringing the bell, making time for the service around the fire, the first one that came that night was mother. <laughs> there she came. They cleared her off a spot, put her in a comfortable position up close to the fire, and the preacher preached, the old missionary preached the gospel with as much clarity and power and Holy Ghost spirit that he could possibly have ever preached. Invitations given, there was another first, because the first one to step forward that night was Mother. God saved. And when Mother came, there was some other holdouts. And so they came and got saved. There was great joy, great joy in the camp. They were up late. They were hugging each other's neck. They were shouting the victory. They were rejoicing in God's great salvation. The campfire began to burn down. Things began to grow quiet, Brother Dean. And they got to looking around for Mother. And they couldn't find her. She wasn't nowhere to be found. They lit their torches and they went out into the edge of the bush country. And they started searching and they couldn't find her. They waited till morning light and they searched three days. And they went all the way to the edge of the mountains, but they couldn't find her. They finally said she must have become disoriented in the excitement and the fire and wandered out of the camp and lost her way, and maybe a beast had devoured her or she had fallen down into one of the deep ravines that was in that area. Nevertheless, she seemed to be gone. The missionary went ahead and packed up after some time of mourning. He went up the river to the next village, and life seemed to return to some degree of normal. They were working their fields and taking care of their lives. One particular afternoon in the heat of the day, some men were tending the field at the edge of the at the edge of the of the where the field hung up to the mountains and over at the distance where the path came out from the mountains, they saw a figure. It was a female. It was an older lady. He stared into the distance, called his putty over, and he said, "That looks like Mama." Well, they ran to her, and sure enough, it was Mama. Been a month, and there she was. She she was a little scratched up and dirty from the journey, but she seemed to be in good health and all seemed to be well. And she had on her shoulder a, a bundle of broom straws. They said, Mother, where have you been? Where have you been? And she said, Boys, I'm thirsty and I'm hungry. Take me to the camp and go get the missionary and I'll tell my tale. They took her to the camp, and they set her down, and they got her some food and some water and sent a runner up the river, and he brought the missionary down. By then it's dark. They've lit the fire. There sits Mother. She's had a plate of food and a glass of water, and uh, she's still got that bundle of broom straw sitting beside her chair. 
They said, uh, the missionary came, got down in front of her, and he said, now, Mother, tell us, where have you been? You had us frightened. We thought you were dead. She said, oh, missionary. She said, the day that I come to Christ was the greatest day of my life. I've never known such a peace as when I accepted the Savior. And she said, but these people know that I'm not originally from this village that I was a child bride at just the age of 12 or 13. And they brought me from my own village. And that was the custom tradition. And she said, the first thing that came to my mind after I got saved was, what about my village, where my people are? They never heard. They don't know. They they never experienced the peace that I have in my heart. And she said, I thought, I must go. And tell. Well, the missionary seemed excited, but he said, Mother, why did you go in the night? She said, Well, I was an old lady, and I feared that if I waited till morning light that the men wouldn't let me go. They would stop me, tell me I was too old to make the journey. And so she said, While everybody rejoiced, I knew the trail, and I slipped off in the night. Missionary's excited now. Did you make it, Mother? Did you reach your village? Oh, yes. I knew the way well. It's two mountains and a valley in that direction. It took me about three or four days to make the trip, and I made it to my village, the village of my birth, my nativity. The missionary said, did they receive you, Mother? She said, oh, yes. She said, we've kept some contact through the years, and there were those that still knew who I was, and they welcomed me to the fire. And She said, I came to tell them. About Jesus. And she said, I didn't know much. I just knew what you preached in that message. But I just kept telling them over and over and over again. Now the missionary is real excited. And he said, Mother, did any come to Christ? And she said, oh, yes, missionary. Many, many came to the Savior. Well, the missionary asked the question, Brother David, that would be asked, how many? How many came? How many got saved? The little lady said, Missionary, she said, I never learned the numbers. I don't know how to count. But she said every time one would come and kneel down and I would begin to tell them about Jesus and ask them would they like to get saved. And they would bow their head and pray and get saved. She said, I'd just reach over and break off a broom straw. And I'd lay it down. She reached down by her chair and picked up that bundle of broom straws and said, I don't know how many's here. But these are the souls that I led to the Savior. And I don't know about you, but I sure am looking for the day when I have a little bundle, Brother Key. I I don't have a bunch. I'd sure like to have more. Uh, But I don't want to be empty-handed. I want to have a few broom straws. Uh, I want a few souls along that pathway. Uh, It's been written today. we got to make sure uh, that we win somebody to Christ. Win somebody to Christ. Now, I don't mean to be funny, Brother David. You come with their imitation. I don't mean to be funny. Okay? I'm not trying to be comical. Don't you take your hand and put it on your chest. Feel your heart? Huh? Feel your, brunt, your, your feel your lungs going in and out, in and out? If I ask you to take your hand and put it over your mouth, you feel your breath. You know what I'm doing tonight? I'm proving your dash is not done. That's right. Amen. Amen. It's being written. Every detail of your life is being recorded. 
And you say, preacher, out of those things you preached, I've been saved, but I've not been faithful. Start tonight. (laughs) Preacher, I've tried to serve, but I don't have souls. Why don't you start tonight? Uh, Your dash has not been finished. Uh, The date of your dash has not been inscribed on your tombstone. Uh, uh, There's still time tonight. And James asked the question, what is your life? What will it matter for? What will it consist of? Not in this life, but in the life which is to come. When God reveals your dash, what difference will your life have made to somebody else? We're standing to our feet. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know you're saved? I'm just going to be blunt. I could have. Don't believe the Holy Ghost directed me to. But I could have stopped... At point number one, the Holy Ghost. Now, if God said stop, I'm, I'll stop. But God didn't say stop, but I could have stopped because the Holy Ghost was ringing bells. And there's somebody in here tonight. There's somebody, maybe more than one somebody. And you're hanging on somebody else's story. You've always been around church. Always been around Christian family members. Maybe a spouse that's saved. I'm going to tell you something. The question is, is it in your dash? Do you have a story? Can you tell me when you got saved? Personally got saved. Don't leave here tonight unless that's settled. You've got to get it settled tonight. Maybe you want to slip out of your seat. If you need somebody to pray with you, you can let us know. Touch Brother Jamie on the hand. Touch Brother Key on the hand. Brother Den on the hand. Somebody will take a Bible. Somebody will help you tonight. You can have your own story. And your story can read something like this. On the Tuesday night of the February Revival in 2020. Hallelujah. I met the Savior and got my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can have a story tonight. What's your story? Do you know you're saved? If you don't know you're saved, don't leave here confused or in question. Life's too short. The days are too troubled. Tomorrow's not promised. But right now you have an opportunity to come to the Savior. Do you have a story? Do you? Do you have a story? Do you have service? Are you being faithful? Are you a soul winner? Have you led someone to Christ? Does people matter to you? Why don't you come to these altars while Brother David sings? Just fill them up. Say, Lord, I want my dash to matter. I want it right. I want it full of the right things. What is your life? If you need somebody to pray with you, let us know. Another bird.